Well, good morning. My name is James Murphy. I'm one of your uh, ruling elders here at Potomac uh, Hills Presbyterian Church. And last week, uh, Dave Silvernow gave us an introduction to uh, James's epistle, the book of James, and uh, covered the first 12 verses. And we're going we're gonna to pick up where he left off, and I'll uh, be bringing you verses uh, 13 through 18, really 12 through 18. And so you can open your Bibles uh, to James's epistle uh, near the end of uh, the New Testament. And uh, today's uh, text is also in your sermon outline, which is in your bulletin, so you can uh, pull that out if, uh, if you use that. Um, you know, last week during uh, Dave's uh, introduction, he was telling us about James's life, about how he was the brother of Christ, it was James this and James that. He probably said James hundreds of times, and I, it's kind of weird for me. I don't think I've ever heard my own name uh, said so many times in a 45-minute span. It was just a little strange for me. And... Um, you know, I don't have a common name, at least not uh, among people my age. You know, there's, and I'm not a Jimmy, I'm not a Jim, you know, I'm not a Jack or a Jay or a Jaime. Um, so, you know, when I hear my name, my ears kind of perk up, and so it was, it was a fun Sunday for me, a little odd if that. Um, uh, and there's not a lot of Jameses even here. I think we have Jim Sigmund is the only other James here this morning. We have a few others, but uh, he doesn't even go by James, so... Uh, so again, just a, a little odd. We've got, we've got two Franks, though. We didn't have two Franks for a long time. Now we have two Franks. We've got more Johns and Daves than you can shake a stick at. <laughs> Honestly, it's kind of confusing, especially if you're new. But you're not going to get a James or, or I mean, you're not going to get a Dave or a Frank today. It's my turn. And, and uh, I get about this, this opportunity about once every year and a half. Your ruling elders do that. And, and uh, Mark Rist will be up here in a couple weeks uh, preaching also. Um, so, so this should be fun. It's fun for me. And um, so no Dave, no Frank, you're, you're getting Jim Bob. Uh, actually, please don't call me Jim Bob. Please, please, whatever you do, I'll, I'll go with Jimmy, but I'll, I'll not do Jim Bob. So please. So I am grateful for this opportunity uh, to preach uh, the word to you this morning. My prayer is that my own frailty and sinfulness uh, would not hinder the truth and I pray that you would come away this morning only hearing and remembering what is good and what is correct and what is true and from God's heart, and that God would grant um, that to, to happen. And my, my, uh, I pray that you know, whatever would come out from my mouth this morning uh, would be honoring to God and that you would be edified. And before I get started, I'd like to add my, um, my, my uh, wish for uh, happy Father's Day to you fathers out there uh, as... as, uh, as John brought out, you know, that, that's a wonderful thing that we have, earthly fathers, and sometimes that memory can be difficult, sometimes uh, even if our, our fathers have passed, that, that can even, even be more difficult, but, you know, whatever the circumstances, our imperfect uh, earthly fathers uh, were used by God to bring us into this world, and so we, we certainly could be thankful for that. My own father, Jerry Murphy, is here this morning, and I'm thankful for him, I'm grateful for him to be able to come out and uh, be here with us, so happy Father's Day to everyone. Let me open us in prayer. You pray with me? Heavenly Father, we gather today because we need you. You're good, and we are not. We need your grace. We need your word. We need to be connected to your church. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for this opportunity to gather together in this place. And thank you for the freedom to open your word without fear. I pray that everything said this morning from this pulpit would be from you. And so that you might receive all the glory. And so that your church and your kingdom might be built up here in Leesburg and throughout the world. Amen. 
Now, I've, I've worked in a lot of different places. I was a, a Marine, and I've been all over the world, dozens of countries, and uh, lots of different jobs, and lots of different people that I've worked with. And uh, one, one gentleman that I worked with once, actually, my boss, uh, had some interesting advice for me. He said, hey, you know, you know, if you want to do well in this organization, you need to learn to deny, counter-accuse, buddy mask, and evade. Buddy mask and evade, okay, so when, especially when you're caught doing something wrong, you've know, you got to deny, counter-accuse, buddy mask, and evade. I thought that was pretty strange advice coming from one of my bosses, and honestly, and he was kind of a funny guy, he was always kind of cutting it up, and, and, and I don't think that he honestly meant that, I never saw him do any of those things, he was, he was a good boss, and, and, um, but he really kind of touched on a truth in our, in our society. I think, I think um, it's very common um, in our society to not accept blame, not to accept uh, that we've done something wrong, to, to point the finger at ourselves and say that, that we're at fault. And uh, oftentimes people are very quick to deny they made a mistake, to accuse someone else, to hide behind a friend or hide behind some other situation and then quickly slip out the door uh, and avoid uh, accepting responsibility. And if we're honest, at some point or another, we've probably done that as well. And so today we're going to look at an example from Scripture here in James chapter 1 uh, of this and also see uh, how God is good and how uh, God is, uh, reminds us that he's good and that his gifts are good. And so I'm going to give you kind of the main point up front. It's one of the things we do in military briefings. We, we give the bluff, the bottom line up front, and, and maybe that kind of breaks with how a lot of sermons are, but I'm just going to tell you where I'm headed on this, right? So if you look in your outline, you see a couple of blanks there, and uh, really the main point is, is that, that God is good, first blank, second blank, and we are not. And really that's really kind of the, old, the, you know, the, the, the whole uh, message of the gospel, and, and that leaves us in a place where we understand that we need God's goodness because we have none of our own. So let's, let's stand for the reading of God's word. If you would, if you're able to do that, I'd appreciate that. This is, this is God's word, is faithful and true, so pay attention. Please listen to this, uh, this reading. It's, it's really important. All right, I'm reading from uh, the ESV. This is chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempted no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we could be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Please be seated. So last week, as I said, Dr. Dave covered the first 12 verses, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up a little bit. I'm just going to go back one verse. We're going to do 12, and I hear a woohoo over here from Mark Rist. Mark Rist is famous for going backing up in men's Bible study. In fact, I think he probably drives in reverse all the way to men's Bible study just to get himself in the mindset of going backward. 
And so we're just going to do verse 12 again. You heard me read it um, because uh, as I read the commentators uh, over the last few weeks, I noticed uh, that a lot of them connect verse 12 uh, in the context of our trials, in the context of the testing of our faith, the difficult things in life. 12 is connected to 13 and following where we start talking about temptations. And so uh, in re- I'll read uh, verse 12 again. It says, Blessed is the man who remi- remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Some have said this is uh, James's beatitude. They might say that you know, James is kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament. Well, um, you know, here we have a single beatitude from, from the uh, Apostle James. You remember, Christ gave us nine different Beatitudes back in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Here we have, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. You remember from the Beatitudes, we have, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and so on. Well, here we have, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And I'm reminded that, you know, Dave pointed out last week right there in the second verse of this chapter, um, it says, uh, you know, uh, that we are going to face trials. You know, that we need to, to, to stand firm and to, uh, to uh, be joyful even, which is really difficult. But the point is, is that trials are going to occur. And so uh, we hear God reminding us of that here in verse 12 uh, and our need to remain steadfast under, under that trial. So God tests us. He, he tests um, us through trials. Those are the, the circumstances, the difficulties, even the suffering in our own lives. Um, and, and our faith is built up. God has even a purpose in that, you know, that, was, that as we're steadfast, we receive blessing. As we steadfast, we, we grow in our faith, um, and we grow closer to God. And I'm sure everyone here uh, has a story about a time when they endured a difficult uh, season and, and uh, saw someone they love suffer. And, uh, and on the other end of that, um, in some kind of hard-to-describe way, we're grateful because God uh, increased your faith and your dependence on him. And so we, we endure trials um, and we face them, but there's, there's, a, there's a distinction in, in the sections that we have here. So uh, the context of the chapter is really trials, but here we're going to move into the temptations. Temptations and trials are a little bit different, and, and uh, you have some blanks in your, in your outline here for this as well. So trials, you can think of those as, as external things. Uh, the environment, um, maybe our upbringing, uh, maybe our financial situation, difficulties in our marriage, trials are external to us. And so that's really your, your, uh, your next blank. Trials are external. Um, but we want to make sure that we, we, we see the difference because uh, as we're going to read and uh, discuss in this passage here, you're going to see that, that uh, temptations are internal. And so we endure trials, we face them, um, but we're told to avoid temptations. We're told to flee from temptation and not to give into it. So let's look at verse 13 and really dig into this here. So in the context of, of trials, let, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempted no one. Um, you know, again, it says when we are tempted here. So it says when he is tempted, not if he is tempted, just like when, when you endure trials of all kinds, not if you endure trials. It says when here. So temptation is part of life. Um, but we want to be careful to note that God cannot be tempted. It says, uh, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempted no one. You see, God is 
is good. Remember, that's one of the main points. God is good, and we're not. God is good, and he's only good. And the things that proceed from God are good, even if we don't understand them, even if we don't like them, uh, even if the, the circumstances, uh, the environment, um, whatever it is that's around us can be extremely difficult. Um, and yet God is good. And um, we read here that he is, in fact, untemptable. He's not subject to be enticed by sin. It, temptation has no sway over him. It has no pull over him. Temptation um, is, isn't a part of who he is, and sin isn't something that God can do. And since tempting someone to sin would be, in fact, sin itself, uh, there, there's really no use, no truth in, in saying that you're being tempted by God. And so don't do that. Don't, don't say that. And let no one say that he's being tempted by God is what we're, we're told here. Um, and, and if you haven't filled it out yet, you're, you know, the next blank is that temptation is external. And we're going we're gonna to see that pretty clearly in the coming verses. And so let's look there. Let's look at 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, several commentators that I came across see uh, the imagery of, of uh, fishing or perhaps hunting here. You know, the Greek terms used um, here for lured and enticed um, are fishing terms. And it's as if we actually bait our own hook, take that hook, and then reel ourselves in. You know, the NIV actually translates it a little bit differently. It says, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And so there's this kind of forceful dragging away, but you know, we, fell, we fell for the snare. We, we took the lure. And, and those lures, the, those things that entice us, originate from within us. There's also imagery here um, of uh, you know, kind of a biological progression. We see conception, we see birth, we see growth, and we see death. Um, last week, Dr. Silvernail said, you can't go wrong if you quote C.S. Lewis, right? You remember this? And he was kind of happily you know, quoting C.S. Lewis twice. But I'm, I'm going to tr- kind of trump that. I'm going to kind of give you the better quote because as, as Silvernail says, you know, Luther has the best quotes, right? So I'm, I'm going to do one Luther quote. I think that suffices to cover over two you know, C.S. Lewis quotes. And Luther says, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair, right? I mean, to think about that, that is really kind of the, the crux of what we're talking about, right? It's just the perfect quote, better than any C.S. Lewis quote I could have found. I, mean, I looked, but I didn't find any, but think of that for a second. You, you, you can't keep a bird from flying over your head. That is absolutely true, but you certainly could keep it from nesting in your hair, right? And, and what Luther is saying is echoing what we're seeing here is, is that, you know, temptation... Which, which leads us into sin, which kind of conceives that desire and that desire gives birth and grows and this maybe habit even or, or even an addiction to sin is something that begins within us. There's a, there's a, uh, an enticement, a, an ensnarement that we allow uh, because of our own desires. And, I, and I'm sure you're, you're, you're exactly like me. That I, I hear that and I'm like, wow, that's true. That is really, really true. Um, 
But, you know, temptation in itself isn't sinful. You can't avoid that bird flying over your head. That's the temptation in the illustration, right? You can't, you can't keep that from happening. In fact, as we, we, we look at the New Testament, we see that even Christ was tempted, right? Um, in, in Hebrews 4.15, it says, uh, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, right? So our God understands what it's like to be tempted. He, he has suffered. He has, you know, walked in our shoes. He, is, he has been tempted. He knows what that's like. He can, he can identify with us in that, and yet he, he endured all that and, and lived a perfect life, and so we know that he didn't succumb to that sin. But he, we don't have this distant uh, God that can't understand us, that isn't there for us when we, when we uh, endure temptation, when we uh, have to suffer through uh, trials. And, and, and part of the reason why commentators see this connection between trials and the, and the preceding verses leading up to 12 and temptations here in 13, 14, and 15 is because trials tend to be the context around which we find ourselves tempted. You know, a difficult circumstance at home with our kids or perhaps with our spouse, maybe our, our parents. Um, you know, a, a difficult scenario at work, maybe we're Maybe we're exhausted from that or emotionally um, drained from other scenarios. That, that, that trial that we might be enduring um, can weaken us and can provide the context uh, for us to be led, in, uh, led away by our own desires and tempted into sin. 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 13 says this, No temptation, we read it earlier, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also pro provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the first thing I get out of this is, you know, uh, we all struggle. We all are tempted. We all fail and fall into sin, but there's no temptation that's unique to you. There's someone here that is likely suffering and struggling through the same temptations there's, if not here, somewhere else, you know, someone that you can talk to that, that is dealing with the same struggles. And so there's, there's, there's nothing new here. If, you know, whatever it is that you're tempted by, whatever it is that right in your mind right now you're thinking of that, that entices you and leads you into sin, you're not alone in that. There, there are people here that would love to help you with that, would love to pray for you, maybe point you to a counselor. But but you need to know that you're not alone. Many times we, we feel so shameful about the things that we do uh, that we like, man, nobody else, no, no real Christian I know is, is, is suffering with this. No, no real Christian would be tempted in that way. And, and the truth is, is that's not true. Um, and, and the next thing I get out of this passage in 1 Corinthians 10 is that God provides a way of escape. He's not going to corner you into a, into a box and leave you no other way out other than to go through sin. There is a way of escape, we, we, and we have the Holy Spirit, we have God's Word, we have Christian brothers and sisters that are there to support us, so there is a way out. Uh, God always provides a way of escape. And so, you know, my question to myself and to us is, why do we tend to blame our moral failings on other people? Why do we do what, what we, we talked about earlier? Why do we deny and counter-accuse and buddy mask and evade? Why is that? That is just something that we see common in, 
in our culture and even honestly speaking, you know, we do those things too. Why is that? You know, why do we say things like, I don't know why I did that. You know, I, I don't know. I was, I was somebody else. I don't know who I was that morning. I don't know what I was, I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, it wasn't myself. I can't believe I did that. Why do, why do we say things like that? It's as if we're saying, you know, that it wasn't us who did or said that thing. I mean, it's more truthful. It'd be more truthful to say, I blew it. I, I, I did, did that. I said that. Um, I, I know it was wrong. It was hurtful. I shouldn't have said it. I know I hurt you. Um, please forgive me. You know, I mean, it's more than just saying I'm sorry. Right, saying I'm sorry is in part, you know, I'm, I'm kind of I'm remorseful of the fact that I got caught, or I'm remorseful for the consequences. But saying please forgive me is is taking it another step, and it's 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 saying I did something wrong, I hurt you, uh, whatever it is, and will you please forgive me? It puts puts ourselves in a submissive position where we need the forgiveness of others. And incidentally, if if, uh, if you're in that position and you're a Christian and you're, re- you're, you're receiving the apology of someone, um, you know, as, 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 as we're taught, we should forgive them. We should forgive them 70 times, seven times. So essentially, over and over again when a brother or sister uh, sins against us. That, that's because we've been forgiven. When we contemplate even for a moment the debt that we owed and what Christ did for us, it should free us to have forgiving hearts. Verse 14 and 15 remind us of ourselves. We tend to pass the blame. We shun personal responsibility. We claim to be the victim. And the consequences are predictable. You remember in, uh, in Genesis 3 at the fall, Adam, what did he do? His first response was, well, you know, the woman that you gave me, she's the one that gave me the, the fruit, and then I ate, right? And in, in, in fact, he turns it around and says, not only is it, you know, not my fault because the woman handed me the fruit is you gave me the woman. So it's really turning it around and saying, you know, God, you're to blame for this. And then what does Eve immediately do? Says the serpent, right? The serpent gave and I ate. And so this is just something that um, is, is part of the sinfulness of the world. And it's in all of us. And it's been happening ever since that moment in the garden all the way up until now. And so your next uh, blank in your outline is, is no one should ever blame God for their temptations. God cannot be tempted. He's not, he's not tempted by sin, and he tempts no one. And this leads to our next uh, set of verses, 16 through 18. And this is really kind of the shift here. So, you know, we've been talking about how kind of in reverse of the points that I gave you that, you know, that we're not good. We sin, we tend to blame others for our sin, we tend to blame God for our temptations, and now we're going to talk about the first part of that main point, and that is, is that God is not, unlike us, he is good. Verse 16 through 18, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so there's a pivot here in verse 16. There's also a lie that we need to identify and destroy in our own hearts. In verses 13 through 15, we're told not to blame our temptations and our sin on God or on, by extension, anybody else. 
We should, we should own those. Verse 16, we're now told not to be deceived. So all of the, the sin in the world is really mankind's fault. We can't, we can't say God made me do it. You know, we can't say, uh, you know, the devil made me do it or any of those kinds of things. You know, we are responsible for our, our actions. But all the good in the world, as we're reading here in these, this section, is, is from God. All the good in the world and all the good uh, that is in us uh, is good because God is only good, and he only gives good and perfect gifts. To believe otherwise would to be accept the lie we're being warned in verse 16 to not be deceived uh, into. So we suffer the difficulties of life, and it's okay for us to wonder why and to, to seek from God some answers. That's, that's natural. It's good, and it's, it's, it's okay to wonder why, uh, you know, whatever your trial is, whatever way you're being tested, why that's happening. Um, but, but understanding, under, underlying it, the ultimate answer is for God's glory and for, his, for your good and for the building up of his church. And so it's okay to, to ask, um, for, ask why when, when we suffer. However, it would be wrong for us to allow that suffering to, and to weaken our faith and to lead us, uh, to entice us, to, to snare us uh, with our own temptations and follow them into sin. Right? Again, the context of our, of our temptations tend to be our trials, difficult circumstances we're in, external to us. Temptations are from within us, and it would be wrong to blame those things from within us on God. It also would be wrong to think that God wants to do good but is unable somehow to do it. Like that God is, uh, sees your suffering um, and, and is, is callous to it, is either callous or just unwilling uh, or maybe even unable to do anything about it. Um, uh, God is good and he, and he loves us and he, as John brought out, um, knows even the intimate uh, concerns of our lives, even the, the, the small things, God is acutely aware of those. Let's look at verse 17 again. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Notice it says, it says every twice, it repeats it, every good gift and every perfect gift. And so, Anything good is, is not excluded from God being the originator, the, the cause of it. Um, God is only good, uh, even if we don't immediately see it. And oftentimes, um, when we suffer, um, it's really, really hard for us to accept that God is somehow good in that, 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 that there's some good result, some ultimate um, justice in, in, uh, in our suffering. Um, it's easy for us to, to wonder, but then... Also, sometimes to, to, to doubt God, and uh, we need to be careful um, in thinking in that way. At the end of Genesis, uh, Genesis 37 through 50, uh, is a familiar story. If you haven't read it, I really encourage you to read that, Genesis 37 through 50. It's the story of Joseph and his brothers. Um, you recall Joseph uh, was the victim of some real cruelty and unspeakable sinful choices and actions at the hands of his own brothers, right? Uh, Joseph... Uh, has the favor of his father. His brothers are very jealous of him. Uh, they throw him in a pit. They later pull him out of the pit just to what? Sell him into slavery, right? And probably to his death. You know, they had no intentions of ever seeing Joseph again, right? And so these are some pretty wicked choices. And Joseph is not responsible for those choices, nor is God. God didn't force Joseph's brothers to do what they did. 
uh, right? That, you know, their circumstances were, were you know, the fact that maybe uh, th- their brother um, was favored by their father. So what? That doesn't justify or give an excuse um, for them to do what they did to him. And, and so they did that. They, they uh, sold him into slavery. And um, uh, God uh, was sovereign over all of that. God was in control. Uh, Joseph endured some um, pretty heinous treatment and uh, endured many, many years of suffering. When it, well, spent time in prison and some other things. Yet, uh, in the end of Genesis, many years later, we see how God redeemed that, how God used that for good. In the end of uh, Genesis, we see that Joseph is now elevated to, to, to the prime ministership of, of Egypt. He's the number two under Pharaoh, from slave to the number two in the, in the most powerful nation in the world. And uh, Joseph convinces Pharaoh that there's some years of famine coming and during years of plenty that he, they should store up food so that when the famine comes, the Pharaoh will have enough food for his own people and even food to sell to the nations around Egypt. And so Pharaoh does that. And then when the famine is severe and the, uh, Joseph's desperate brothers travel to Egypt to buy food. And in the final chapter of Genesis, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, those same brothers that, that sold him into slavery, to never to see him again. He says this in Genesis 50, 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, God was sovereign over that trial. Joseph endured many years of, of difficulty, certainly temptations uh, that came from within him that, that arose around that. He, he had opportunities to sin. Um, and, and yet God had that whole thing orchestrated for good. And so really kind of the lesson here, as I said, God is good and we're not. God is good in the giving of good gifts. Every good and every perfect gift is from God. And so as we look at this, there's, a, there's an allusion in this verse. It says, uh, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And this should be a huge encouragement to us as well. We live in a world that's just swirling with change. And uh, you know, so the allusion here is that uh, one of the most unchangeable constants in our experience are the lights in the sky, the stars, the planets. Galaxies, you know, they, they they move across the sky in predictable ways, and even in the in the time of James, they could see this, right? But e- even in those lights, there there is variation, there is change. They 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 move. Planets and and moons move. Galaxies spin. The light from our sun moves across the sky, and the shadows change shape, and how we perceive the things that the sun illuminates uh, varies as as the shadows change across uh, the day. Um, but God doesn't change. God doesn't change. You know, we're not good. We change constantly. We, we, we do things kind of randomly sometimes. We do things out of, you know, out of our emotions and out of our sins. But God is not like that. He's not capricious. He's not erratic. He's not compulsive. He's, he's not moody or rash or unsteady. He's not random. You know, God is immovable. He is, he is constant. And that should be an encouragement to us. I mean, his character is not changing. If God says in his word that he is good and that he gives every good and every perfect gift, that he's, if he's sovereign and we see that in God's word over and over again, we can trust 
that our God is good and that he does not change. We're not going to fall into some, some crack in his sovereignty and the, the, the circumstances we find ourselves in are spinning out of control and God is not on his throne somehow. Uh, we know that he is good and we know that he's steady and he's, he's the father of lights. He created the lights. He put the stars in the heavens. Um, a God that big that is transcendent outside of time, outside of creation, and yet near to us individually is an amazing God. And, and we should draw comfort that, that his character does not change. And so your seventh blank there is that uh, we can trust God even through trials because he is good. And right below that, and because he never changes. Your next blank there is he never changes. You see, I, I get it. I, I've, I sadly have endured some tremendous trials in my own life, suffering, uh, difficult, uh, just situations that I, that I would much rather have not endured. Th- things that have happened to me and the people around me that I, I really, really, really just wish never happened. Um, and yet I... You know, by by God's grace, uh, I understand that He is at work, was at work, and is at work in those scenarios, and that He's bringing forth His ultimate good, and even in things that I don't understand, maybe never will in this life, uh, bringing about His glory and uh, uh, His good. You know, in a lot of churches, people say God is good, and the response is all the time. Right, and then the refrain is all the time. God is good, right? So you've heard that. Um, that's hard to say, all the time. And yet, it's it's in those moments when it's most difficult to say that we need to remind ourselves of that. That God is good all the time, all the time. God is good, and I, and I hope you believe that. It says here, God doesn't change. There's no variation or shadow due to change in Him. And that should be a comfort to us. And so, you know, we've understood, we've talked a little bit about our trials and about oftentimes trials provide the context for our temptations. And sadly, we blame others. We even blame God for those. But why are we here even as Christians? I think verse 18 gives us a glimpse at that. And I'm always keen to look for things in Scripture that provide purpose, that speak to why we're here. Because, you see, I was... For a lot of years, I was an atheist, and, and if you asked me, what, what, what was, was there any meaning in life? Was there a purpose? Why are we here? I'm getting to pretty desperate and, and uh, sad answers to those questions. You know, so so I, you know, I just believe that you know, we, we just kind of wriggled along, that we you know, kind of bumped into things in life, and we, we, we did our best, that you know, there was no meaning, no permanent you know, outcome um, that basically we just kind of squirmed along, did our best, tried, tried to do what we could, and then eventually the lights went out and uh, nothing remained of us afterward. And, and that, that's pretty sad. And, and so, um, you know, looking for meaning for my own life and for, for God's purposes is something that's always kind of uh, drawn me in as I looked at Scripture. And so let's look for verse 18 and uh, read why God created us in the first place. First, we'll get the how in the first part of the verse. It says, verse 18, of, our own, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And so how did he bring us into relationship? Why are we here? He brought us forth by the word of truth. Uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 3, uh, section 1 says, God from all eternity did 
by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatever, whatever, whatsoever comes to pass. And so God is sovereign. He, he freely chose us to be, and it was out of his own good and perfect will for us to exist in the first place. So, you know, look at this as in contrast to verse 14. You look back a little bit there. In verse 14, we have our desires giving birth to sin and our sins growing up and giving birth and bringing forth death. Here we have in verse 18, God bringing us forth, giving us new birth, giving us his Holy Spirit and all that by the power of his word, the word of truth. And so by, by saving us, God brought us out of darkness and into the kingdom of his light and freedom he brought us forth by the preaching of his word. That was the how, the, the word of truth. He made us alive and brought us to himself. And for that, we have a reason. We have a, we have a purpose. And we'll get to that in a second. But just a reminder, God is not rash. He, he planned this out. So believers, why are we here? Let's look at the, the next half of that, that verse. I'll, I'll read the beginning of it as well. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Again, that's the how. He brought us forth by the gospel that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Aha, so there's the purpose. So that we could be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's, that's purpose. That's, that's part of why we're here. That's why he brought us forth by the gospel. Westminster Court Short Catechism says, and agrees with other passages in Scripture and says the chief end or highest purpose of man is to what? All right. See, participating here. That's awesome. So, yeah, so we have, that's, that's part of our purpose. That's like the, the, the main purpose, the chief purpose. The reason why we're here, the reason why God calls people to himself is to enjoy him and, and to glorify him and to do that forever from, from the moment you believe and on into eternity. So that's part of our purpose. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 is, is such an amazing chapter. Let, let, turn there, if you will. Open your Bibles. Move, move back to Ephesians chapter 2. I was just going to read for you uh, verse 10, but it's just, I mean, there's so much good stuff here. I'm going to start in verse 4. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, says this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead, we were his enemies, and yet, even though we were just filthy sinners, deserving of nothing good from God, he made us alive to be with, together with Christ. It says, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up, God doing this, God raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were his enemies, like I said, and now we're seated at his table. How glorious is that, right? That's an amazing thing for God to do. So that, verse 7, in the coming ages we, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's purpose in that verse too, right? So he did that so that he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace to everyone. That God could use us to demonstrate what his faithfulness, what his grace looks like to a broken world. When he saved us, even though we didn't deserve it, that can be shown through us, and that's part of our purpose. For by grace you've been saved, verse 8, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Ponder that for a second. Even your faith is the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, I like to kind of imagine, I don't think it's like this, 
You know, no one is going to be standing in line in the cafeteria in, God, in heaven, kind of nudging, you know, you know, some of you are thinking, gosh, I hope there's no lines in heaven and there are no cafeterias and buffets and those kinds. I don't think there are. All right, so just bear with me. It's an illusion, right? It's just the metaphor. So no one's going to be like nudging the guy in line with him in, in heaven and saying, why are you here? And, and, and no one's going to have the opportunity to say, I'm here because I did all these great things. I, you know, I, I, I put a bunch of money in the plate when it went by. I helped orphans. You know, I went to the mission field. You know, I was a really good husband. I you know, loved my kids. No one's going to have any kind of list of good things so that you, may, you can boast and say, that's why I'm here. And that's the point of this verse. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. It's that gift of God. That faith that you have is a gift. And because of that faith, you can be with Christ. You're seated with him in heavenly places. Here's the verse that I really was trying to get to. That was all on a side. I think it's just so good. You've got you to gotta love this chapter. But look at verse 10. It says, look, uh, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he had prepared beforehand that we should work in them. So we walk in them. So we're not saved by good works. We're saved to do good works, right? I mean, God has prepared in advance these things for us to do. And so that's part of our purpose. We're here to, to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our ultimate, like, kind of biggest thing, uh, right? But, but part of that is, is to do good works. God, God didn't save us because of good works. He saved us to do good works, right? See, so as, as followers in Christ, believers in the gospel, we have that purpose in this life. And that's, uh, that's your ninth blank there. As Christians, we have purpose. You know how I know that's, that's true, that we're saved to do good works, not saved by good works, other than that it's clearly written here in Scripture? Because all of you believers wouldn't be here if that weren't true. If God just saved you so that you could be taken to heaven, you would believe and you'd be gone. If that was the only purpose in the gospel, if Christ died so that you could be with him, then you'd believe and, and you would die and you'd, be, you'd go to be with him. Incidentally, that'd be kind of rough on getting volunteers for children's church, right? I mean, it'd be, it'd be a real drag on, on uh, church membership. If, if all the believers, when you came, became a Christian, you, you, know, you were brought to be with God. But you, you haven't. You haven't been. You know, we, we have believers here, and, and that tells me that God has things for you to do, good things for you to do, not things that will ever save you because you're already saved because of his grace, but things that God needs, uh, that God has prepared for you to do so that you might walk in them. You know, sometimes we say when we narrowly escape some dangerous scenario, maybe we, go, we, we get through a, a difficult illness, you know, God must not be done with me yet. And that, that's certainly true, but it's only part of the truth. God is not done accomplishing through you what he plans to accomplish yet. And that's uh, something we need to remember. And so, you know, we're, we're saved by this word of truth, and so what is that word of truth? Well, here it is. It's kind of a good news, bad news story. And I'm going to start with the bad news. And the bad news is that everyone, everywhere, all of us, myself included, are not good. We're, we're sinners. We're, we're not perfect. And unfortunately, the standard to enter into the presence of God is perfection. And, and we, are, we all fall short of that standard. None of us here is perfect. No one you know is perfect. And so... You know, the bad news is that, you know, your, your church attendance, you know, you're, you're paying your taxes, you're being a good citizen, a good student, good father, a good employee, uh, being gracious to people, walking old ladies across the street, none of that is going to get you into heaven, 
right? I mean, those are good things. But, but the sad news is that no matter how many of those things that we do, they're never going to make us perfect. They're never going to uh, make us acceptable in the sense that all of our, our sins are gone. We're, we still have that indebted to us. And some of you are saying, you know what, I've, I've heard the gospel means good news, and it does. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news, and you're probably thinking, that's not all that great news. If, if that's, that's the gospel, you know, I'm not good enough to get into heaven. None of my goodness is going to earn my salvation. That's kind of bad news, and you're right, it is. But that's not the end of the story, right? The gospel is good news. It's, in fact, the best news you're ever going to hear. It's the best news any of us is ever going to hear. You see that even though we were disqualified for heaven, even though we were God's enemies, even though we were dead in our sins, filthy in his sight, God did something amazing. He sent his son, born of a woman, fully God, and somehow simultaneously fully man, to live a perfect life without sin so that he could make the perfect sacrifice in our place, take on himself 100% of God's wrath and, and punishment that we deserve in order to place on us, all of us who believe, 100% of his righteousness, 100% of his obedience, everything that we need to be permanently forgiven, accepted, adopted, and brought into his family, welcomed into heaven, even though we are to blame, God gives us grace and forgives us, and that is really good news. Really good news. And when we believe that, God gives us Christ's perfection in exchange for our sin, he gives us the Holy Spirit, and he pays our debt. And the permanent result is that instead of that punishment we all deserve, believers in Christ are given eternal life, which begins, as I said earlier, the moment you believe and continues forever. Heaven is a real place, and you can only get there. It'll only be yours by faith in Christ and in him alone. You need to trust that, that his completed work on the cross is your payment. So that's the gospel. That's the good news. As I said, it's a good news, bad news story. So how are we doing? Let's look back at verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 18 in our text. It says that God did all that miraculous work on the cross in his own, in his children, in his church to make us Christians new so that we could be first fruits of his creatures. In the Old Testament, First fruits are the, the first part of the harvest, the, the, the first fruit that comes out of the ground. It's the best part. It's the part devoted to God, and that's what we, according to this verse, are to be. We're, we're to be a blessing. We're to be God's uh, um, uh, adopted and um, devoted uh, harvest. We're, we're, there to, we're the first fruits. We're supposed to be devoted to God and, and, and supposed to have an impact on the world. Now, we may not be good, but because of Christ did for us, he sees us believers as perfect. And we're given this heavenly gift by faith alone. And so, so how are we doing on that, Potomac Hills? And how, how are we individually and as a church in this community and our families and our neighborhoods and our workplaces, how are we doing? Can the world see in us that we as a church and as individuals are different? God saved us to be these first fruits so that you know, everyone could see that, that we belong to him. And the question is, are, are our neighbors, are our friends, our family members getting a taste of what God's goodness is, a taste of that grace 
uh, is taste that forgiveness when, when they interact with us? Can they see that? Can they see that in us? So this morning we've, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. I was, you know, when I was preparing for this sermon, I thought, well, that's, a lot. that's not, very, I don't know, a whole lot of verses there. Um, but there really is a lot there for us to, uh, to think through. Um, we've seen that the, the Bible often addresses and uh, tells us things that we can relate to. You know, we see ourselves in Scripture. We, we, we all endure trials. We're all attempt, we all are tempted. All of us sin. And none of us is good. We see that we can't blame others for our sin, and we've seen that we cannot blame God for our sin because God is good, and everything that he does is good, and every gift that he gives, every gift is perfect and good. And we, He cannot be tempted, and he, he doesn't tempt us. And so uh, it would be evil for us to say that God is tempting us. Our sins are a result of when we are tempted and lured and enticed by our own desires. They're internal. We're responsible for our actions, and we take the bait and and are, are the ones to blame for our sins. But God does not leave us in our sins. In fact, in spite of our sinfulness, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us just as we are. And, you know, a lot of times we think, well, um, you know, I'll, I'll become a Christian when I get my act together. You know, I've got these things about my life that are just not all that pretty, not, not all that uh, lovely and, um, you know, when, when I get my act together, when I, when I get more spiritual, then I'll, then I'll trust Christ. Uh, Christ accepts you as you are, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter who you are right now. Christ accepts you because of his grace. Remember, he gives, he gives you the faith, and he doesn't save you by works. Look, look again at that, that section in Ephesians. If, if any of that is confusing to you, you, have, you know, take, take that uh, Bible and open it up and, and, and pray over those verses. They really have a lot of truth in them. And so, um, you know, we have the gospel, the word of truth, and, and you need it. I need it. And, you know, it's, it's important for us to hear it. Maybe you think this is all old hat, but it's important for us uh, to uh, be reminded of the gospel. The, the, the point here is, is, do you believe it? Maybe you've heard the gospel over and over again. It's hard to attend this church and not hear the gospel. Um, I think it's pretty almost impossible to at least not hear the words, but do, do you believe them? And that's, that's what is at issue here. Are you, are you, um, uh, do you understand and do you believe that, that Christ died for you? And we all struggle for, with temptation, and sadly, that's not going to change in this life. And too often, we succumb, all of us do, to temptation and fail to do what we know it is right, and, and nobody's exempt from that. But the encouragement for us as Christians is that God doesn't leave us alone in our temptation. Trials will always be there, but God, our Heavenly Father, is always the giver of good and perfect gifts. He never changes, and he, will give you, he has given you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always be there to enable you to escape temptation. There will always be a way out. Remember that verse. You know, your temptations are not unique to you, and God will always provide a way of escape. As one of his, you're no longer a slave to sin, unable to, to say no when you're tempted. You can obey. You can please God. God will provide you the strength to break the cycle and say no to temptation and the grace to do what is right. And so, as I said, we all struggle in various ways. God has put you in this church where the word is taught and people love you. If, if you need help, you're not alone. Most importantly, because you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and you're not alone in that sense either. 
You have elders and deacons and a host of others here that, that can help you. Do not try to face your temptations alone. Find someone you're comfortable opening up to, someone you can trust and feel safe with. Ask them to help you, to hold you accountable. If you're not in an accountability group, you should do that. Find someone to pray for you. And there are also uh, Christian counselors in this area that we can point you to. But the point is, is, is get help. You're not alone, what you're struggling with. I know you feel shameful about it perhaps, but um, others struggle with that as well. And you have the word, you have uh, you know, a staff here that's ready to help you. And if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be a victim of your own desires. So friends, if you believe the word of truth, the gospel, Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. Not during a trial, not when you're tempted, and not even when you're disobedient and sinful. Because God is good. Amen. Amen. Why don't you think about that for a few minutes? Pray for a few minutes, um, a few moments quietly, and I'll close this in prayer. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you, God, for giving us abundant, good, and perfect gifts. In so many ways, you've shown us your mercy, your goodness, and your grace. Thank you for your church throughout the world who on this very Lord's Day in every time zone across the globe is gathering to worship you and serve your people. Thank you that even though many of your people are suffering trials and persecutions, you are unchanging in your love for your church. We are thankful that you have a glorious purpose even in our trials. Help us, Holy Spirit, to stand faithfully in them. Please help us when we are tempted to blame our circumstances, to blame others or even you for the things that tempt us and for the sins we drag ourselves into. Thank you, Lord, for our earthly fathers. Every one of us has them. None of them are perfect, just as none of us are perfect. And you used our fathers to bring us into this world, and so you subsequently drew us to yourself and our heavenly Father. Thank you for our fathers. Thank you for being our heavenly Father. And I pray that you strengthen and encourage the fathers here this morning, enable them to be a blessing to their families, give them grace, give them great faith, help them to love you and serve you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for not leaving us alone, to be enticed by our desires, to stumble and follow our temptations. You have both empowered us to obey and be forgiven. You've uh, given us faith in Christ and forgiven us when we don't obey. Dear God, you give us the strength to follow you faithfully. Would you please do that in abundant, overflowing measures? Help us to do the good works which you have prepared for us to do. Help us to demonstrate the hope that we have in Christ to a lost and broken world. Thank you for your unchanging mercy and character. Thank you for your unchanging grace that will never let us go. In the matchless name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, amen.